Thanks. Oh my goodness. My microphone was on through the whole singing of that song. Hezekiah, I hoped you uh, <laughs> controlled that. I think the little ones were on their way out, is that right? Okay, well, we're going to take a look at uh, Hebrews 12. We're going to continue in that uh, this morning. As I was writing this morning, I think my introduction is half of the sermon, so rather than wait uh, to read it, let me just read the passage uh, up front right now. Uh, Hear the Word of God, starting in verse 18 of Hebrews 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a lot of repetition in this from the Sunday school class. I warned uh, the folks in the Sunday school class, but it's in the text. Uh, There's this uh, stark distinction made between Sinai and Zion, and we need to think that through, figure out where it's coming from and where it's taking us. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we sang, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. I don't know how familiar you are with that song. It's one of my favorites. Um, And we started that. I mean, the first verse is, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. And if you know where the song goes from that, it basically says that since God has done that, since He has hushed the law's loud thunder and quenched Mount Sinai's flame, uh, we then love and sing and wonder and praise. That's what flows out of what it is that God has done this conviction, this article of faith that God has hushed the law's loud thunder and has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Now, if your mind was engaged, what did you think you were singing? And if your mind wasn't engaged, don't worry about it. My mind is often not engaged when I'm singing arcane lyrics. Um, But if if I ask you to engage your mind now, what does it mean uh, when it says that he has hushed the law's loud thunder, he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Uh, Do you think that what that means is that the Ten Commandments have been made irrelevant? Well, I think everybody here knows that that can't possibly be the case. That's not the case. We understand the relevance of the Ten Commandments. So, what does it mean? And how does what God did and hushing the law's loud thunder and quenching Mount Sinai's flame provoke us to love, sing, and wonder and praise accordingly. How does that become the root of our worship, the root of our uh, praise? Uh, The larger context of chapter 12 uh, is this encouragement 
to heed the Word of God, to put it into practice. At the end of the previous section, uh, we heard the writer, the preacher, uh, give these admonitions to strive for peace and for holiness, uh, to make sure that you obtain the grace of God, to guard against bitterness, to avoid sexual immorality. Uh, those were the commands that were given, uh, the, uh, the admonitions uh, to the people there. And really, is just a reiteration and an extension of the first verse in the chapter in which uh, the writer says, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely. So the whole chapter, you know, that section on fixing our eyes on Jesus and that section on the fatherly discipline of the Lord which they seem to have forgotten, all of that is in service to making sure that you put God's Word into practice. That's what the writer is telling them to do. And this is, again, the turning point. As Romans 12 is the turning point in Romans, Hebrews 12 is the turning point uh, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, But how? How will you put God's Word into practice? How will you avoid sexual immorality? How will you guard against the root of bitterness that can spring up? How will you make every effort to live at peace with one another? Uh, All of these things kind of come up, and and you ask yourself the question, how is that going to take place? Now, what we've been looking at in the Sunday school class is there is a pharisaical obedience that is actually worse than overt sin. Jesus told His disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is superior, it exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, again, if you just kind of take a step back and say, let me think about this, because the Pharisees look awfully righteous to me. The Pharisees are minding their P's and Q's. They're not, not, they're not only obeying the law, they're, they're going the extra mile. They're drawing what they used to call a fence around the law. They not only want to, they don't want to break the law, they don't want to even get within 10 feet of breaking the law. How is my righteousness going to exceed theirs? But that pharisaical obedience is horrifying, horrifying. But there is also, thankfully, demonstrated in the Gospels, and I love the stories that are there, and we'll get to them, God willing, at some point uh, in the months to come, there are these great pictures of the obedience of faith. I always think that the arresting verse is in Romans chapter 1 when it says uh, uh, that there is an obedience that comes from faith. And I remember the first time I read that, I thought this is very interesting. Paul says, you know, God gave us grace and apostleship uh, to proclaim among the Gentiles the obedience that comes from faith. And I remember when I read that, I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm working hard at obeying God right now, but that obedience is not coming from faith. It's coming from discipline. It's coming from accountability. It's coming from a rigorous application of the laws of God into my life. What is this that Paul is talking about, the obedience that comes from faith? Well, again, these are demonstrated. There is the tax collector in Luke 18, what we've been looking at in the Sunday school class, Uh, but there's also the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. I mentioned that a little bit this morning in the class. There's the great picture of Zacchaeus. There's Mary and Martha. Uh, There's just a whole bunch of them. 
uh, that demonstrate uh, an obedience that springs from faith. A natural, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say it, but I think it's true, a spontaneous obedience that springs from faith. Uh, Jesus describes the sinful woman as saying she is loving much because she's been forgiven much. So something has happened there that she is able to fulfill the great commandment to love the Lord her God with all her heart, soul, strength, and mind almost effortlessly because she's been forgiven much. And we actually had a whole chapter of this in chapter 11 in Hebrews showing what a life of faith and obedience looks like. So, part of the larger flow of the book of Hebrews, uh, if you've been tracking and if I've been tracking, uh, is to take a look at what's happening in heaven. Uh, One commentator says that the prominent question in the book of Hebrews, or one prominent question, is what is real? What is your reality? And he answers that by saying, if it's simply material, if your reality is simply what can be touched, seen, and tasted, then you cannot grow spiritually. But we've seen in the book of Hebrews, in the letter to the Hebrews, that in heaven, Jesus has enacted the perfect sacrifice in the true temple, the true and glorious temple. Uh, And He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 10, we were told that we can enter the real holy place through the real curtain, which is His body. And so we're asked to kind of take a look at heaven, take a look at what's taking place in heaven and what's going on in heaven. And in heaven, we're told there's this great cloud of witnesses, great cloud of witnesses that are watching, that are, I guess, in theory, encouraging, rooting us on. And, And all of this really anticipates where we're going this morning in verse 22, when he says, you have come to Mount Zion, uh, to the city of the living God. But that's set up with a description of Sinai. So, uh, past the introduction, let's take a look at the passage. Uh, First, let's take a look at Sinai. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So, you should remember Mount Zion uh, in the Bible. Uh, It it takes place in the book of Exodus. You remember that God delivered uh, the nation of Israel out of the bondage uh, in Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And when they got on the other side of the Red Sea, after an appropriate celebration, they made a beeline to Mount Sinai. And the way it's described uh, in the book of Exodus, three chapters later, it actually says it took them three months to get there. On the way, they were fed manna in the morning from heaven. They were fed quail in the evening. They were, their thirst was quenched from, with water from the rock. Uh, but three months later, they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses called all the people together, and he said, you need to watch while I go up on the mountain to meet with the Lord. He goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Um, They were to consecrate themselves. They were to wash their clothes. They were to abstain from sexual intimacy, and they were warned not to come too close. But they were to pay attention. 
They were to reside at the foot of the mountain while Moses went up on the mountain, again, uh, to hear from the Lord and the way we understand it, to receive uh, the Ten Commandments. The story stretches out a good bit in Exodus, uh, but this passage in Hebrews uh, describes chapter 19, and I'd recommend that you go back and read chapter 19 uh, later on this afternoon and soak in what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. The upshot of that experience is that it was terrifying. There are seven descriptors, what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice. All of this at such a volume uh, that they were quaking. I don't know that we appreciate this. Our worship services are usually pretty joyful. Uh, We hear the voice of the Lord in a way that doesn't terrify us but actually speaks of good news, but still the terrifying aspect is still there. These days, some stay home and watch the live stream rather than endure rain or a bad hair day. Uh, the, the Israelites were not given that option. They were told, get yourself together, wash your clothes, purify yourself, come to the foot of the mountain and watch what happens and listen to what happens. The most terrifying thing of all was the voice of God, ostensibly giving the law to Moses. And again, the experience was such that they could not endure it. In fact, the writer here says that even Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, what are we to to do with that? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, the the first thing is to understand um, that you and I cannot stand in God's presence and we cannot hear His voice. And, and the blithe, kind of indolent, even casual assumption that we're okay with God, when I was a teenager, the Doobie Brothers sang, Jesus is just all right with me. And some of us brand new Christians said, oh, this is great, the Doobie Brothers are singing about Jesus. That's a deeply offensive notion when you understand God, you're not just all right with God, and God is not just all right with you. It happens repeatedly in the Bible. If you enter the presence of God, if you hear the voice of God, you are undone. One of the best pictures of that is at the end of Job, where the Lord shows up and says, Job, you've been casually complaining about me, full of righteous indignation, wanting to have your claim heard, wanting to have a mediator between you and me. Well, here I am. And, of course, Job falls on his face. He covers his mouth with his hand. He said, I spoke about things I didn't know about. Isaiah does the same thing in chapter 6. Peter does the same thing in, uh, in Luke chapter 5 when the catch of fish is overwhelming. That apparently is the blinding incident for him where he sees who Jesus is. And he says, Lord, depart from me, a sinful man. Uh, Paul does the same thing on the road to Damascus when the Lord shows up and says, um, why are you persecuting me? Uh, So if you get into the presence of God, you are undone and you are terrified. There was a funny little movie uh, many years ago. I really date myself with this, but I can't even remember the name of the movie. It was about these old people who found a, uh, a, uh, a pod, you know, from outer space, 
And uh, they found it in the ocean, and they had a, a young man who was doing the, the, the scuba diving to bring this thing up, and, uh, and, and it, it gave them youth. And, and, and he began to wonder who these people were, and it turned out that they were aliens. And at one point, I remember Brian Dennehy was, the, was one of the actors, and he pulled down his eyelid, and this shot of light came out, indicating he wasn't what he appeared to be, and, the, and the, the, the young man was terrified. Well, this is what happens when you enter the presence of God. You're, properly speaking, terrified. Now, the other thing to do with this is to be careful about the way that you think about the law of God. To be careful about the way, and I've got the quote from Luther that's written in the bulletin, that the first use of the law is to expose you The first use of the law is to bring you into the presence of a holy God and show you what He expects, to show you a little bit about what He is like, but to show you the standard to which you are being held accountable. And that's terrifying. So that's the setup for the writer to say, but that's not what's happened to you. You've not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, but you have come. When one of the commentators I read said that the word come there is loaded. It's got heavily, heavy religious significance. You know, what you come to, what you rely on, where you look for your life, where you look for your meaning, where you look for your contentment, where you look to find out if things are okay with you, you have come Uh, to Mount Zion. And again, there are seven descriptors. You come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. The last thing in both of those lists is a voice. You have come not to the thunder of Sinai, neither have you come to the blood of Abel crying out for vengeance from the ground, is the way it's described, but rather you come to the blood of Christ which speaks, and it speaks grace, and it speaks peace, and it speaks forgiveness, and it speaks acceptance, and it it speaks reconciliation. It, It really seems as though a worship service is being described here. I've often thought of this passage in that way. Uh, to understand that we are being surrounded as we worship by these thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly, in festal gathering is the way the ESV uh, describes it. It, uh, We ought to just pause and notice that the angels who are ordinarily fearsome, and if you ever hear their garb described anywhere in the Bible, it's military garb, And they've got swords, and they're ready to go to war. And in fact, there are descriptions of angels being present at Sinai uh, when the law was being given, but angels in their fearsome presence, the fearsome aspect of them, here it looks like they've put on party clothes. They are in, in festal gathering. They are in joyful assembly. And they're singing with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So what this this picture really is, is it's a picture of heaven. 
This is a picture of what is being described at the end of the book of Revelation, when the city of God descends to the earth. It's the city that Abraham was looking for, whose designer and builder was God. So that's interesting. As you have come to Zion, to the city of the living God, you know, I wanted to sing a song about Zion, so we got glorious things of thee are spoken. My other option was a ditty uh, from Psalm 48. I know some of you are my age, and so some of you must have been part of the Jesus people, and you must have remembered the guitar strumming saying, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. I sang that song long before I saw a photograph of Mount Zion, and I was a little disappointed. It's a little lump. It's a little hill, a hillock. I think is what they would call it. But why is it beautiful in elevation and the joy of the whole earth? Because of what's being described here. Because it is the city of the living God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. It is heaven. It is symbolic of heaven. And what the writer is saying here is that you and I get that now. You know, we often read Revelation and we say, okay, that's what's to come. That's the future. It's, a, it's a really a fundamental misunderstanding of Revelation. Part of it is what is to come, but part of it is what's already happened. And that's one of the confusing things about our redemption is there's an already and a not yet. That there are things that we're waiting for, for, but there's an awful lot that's already happened right now to which we have access. And so when he says that you have come… It's very similar to the other encouragements that the writer of Hebrews has given back in chapter 6 where he said, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We looked in chapter 10 where he says that uh, uh, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so, you know, appreciate the profundity of what's taking place here when it says that you have come to God, the judge of all. My favorite commentator in Hebrews says that that sentiment, that description is immensely solemn. And he said it's also immensely reassuring. This is what you have come to. So, what do we do with this? You have not come to Sinai. That is terrifying. You have come to Zion. That is heaven. You have come to God the judge. You have come to Jesus whose blood speaks a better word. So, I'll get back to the original question. Because... God has hushed the law's loud thunder and quenched Mount Sinai's flame. You and I are, if I can say it, set free to love and sing and wonder and praise. So, you know, the question will be, how will you lay aside every weight, shake loose the sin that clings so closely, run with endurance the race set before you, How will you, how will you, by what vehicle will you make every effort to live at peace, to be holy, to eschew bitterness, and to avoid sexual immorality? 
Well, here's the interesting thing, and I only noticed this recently. Galatians has a very similar line of thinking. And, and Galatians and Hebrews are two completely different books and probably written by two different authors and certainly two two different audiences and probably <clears throat> they're at the outside limits of the, of the time span of the writing of the New Testament. But in Galatians, the Apostle Paul basically says, why would you go back to the law when you've been justified by God's grace through faith? And one of the ways that he describes that, one of the ways that he illustrates that uh, is by comparing Hagar and Sarah. And that's actually a confusing portion of Galatians. You've got to read it very carefully, and you probably need the help of a study Bible. But he calls Hagar and Sarah… Mount Sinai, and the Jerusalem above. So that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, which is the heavenly Jerusalem. So, you know, the writer of Hebrews is saying, which one of these are you going to choose? Paul's more explicit. Which one are you going to choose? Why are you going back to Sinai? Why are you facing Sinai? when in fact Zion is on offer. And he's, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't you remember how terrifying Sinai is? Or Sinai was. Don't you understand how that, was, that struck fear at the very core? And so we get to this problem of the Pharisees that they almost categorically forgot that. They forgot what the law was for. They thought that the law existed so that they could accomplish it and boast before the Lord that they had accomplished it and set themselves over against and above their peers. That's what they thought the law was for. With catastrophic consequences. Again, really catastrophic. It is unnerving to see Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7 welcome the Messiah into his home and be absolutely blinded to who he is. That's a catastrophic consequence of misunderstanding what Sinai was all about. That Sinai was given to blow you up and to make sure that you never got anywhere close to the presumption of righteousness. Now, no one here is going to launch into a formal legalism with circumcision, dietary restrictions, and the like, the things that were bothering the folks in Galatia. We're not going to return to Sinai in that way, but what we've been talking about in the Sunday school class is that we are all prone to establish our own laws by which we claim to be righteous in principle going back to Sinai. Paul calls this impulse in Galatians the flesh. He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Well, the flesh is sneaky. The flesh hides itself. You can't identify it and pick it out very readily, but there are markers. 
In Sunday school, we mentioned that a performance-oriented Christianity is a marker of the flesh and of the return to Sinai. A myopic self-confidence, blame-shifting, mistakes were made but not by us. Self-protection, discontentment, anxiety, stemming from a deep sense of inferiority, and spiritual lethargy, little energy to pray, little energy to worship, little energy to pursue wholeheartedly the ordinary means of grace. These are the children of Sinai. The apostle lists other markers uh, in his deeds of the flesh. Uh, He lists idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Along with drunkenness, orgies, and sorcery, you know, those are the technicolor things that grab our attention. We say, oh, the deeds of the flesh, yeah, that's that nasty stuff. It's the drunkenness, it's the orgies. Little R-rated word that you have to go and explain to your children, it's in the Bible. And, and, and sorcery. But really, the, the, the more dominant, at least in volume, realities of the deeds of the flesh are quite common in the church. Idolatry, which is greed, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and the rest. These are the things that issue from the slavery of the law. So you could ask yourself, am I angry? And you could ask yourself, where does that come from? Is there a law by which I seek to be identified as righteous that is being challenged, thus making me angry? Or you could ask yourself the question, am I envious? Am I jealous? And the same thing, if so, what law have I erected? From where do I derive my righteousness, my happiness, my life? Where am I facing Sinai rather than Zion? Or all the things that that create dissension. You know, when you let a private conviction in a gray area turn into a rule that everyone else has to obey. This is divisive. It's destructive. It ruins the community, which is what the Pharisees were all about. There's a lot more to be done here. I was telling Adam when we were gathering to pray back here that if I were king of the forest, I would invite you back tonight so that we can discuss this in an open forum. There's a lot to think about here. But, but the writer of Hebrews holds up these two mountains as symbols of how we're going to live. You know, are you going to live with the presumption of righteousness that comes from the law, or are you going to live leaning on the promises? leaning on the promises of God. Paul refers to life in the gospel as freedom. Not freedom from obeying God, but freedom to worship. Freedom to approach the throne, to receive God's favor freely in Christ. And this accords with Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You might remember the story of Luther. It's a story worth repeating again and again and even look it up and mark it on the internet. He was the best monk in his Augustinian order. Nobody was more strenuous than Martin Luther in his fealty to the law of God. 
but he was also terrified. He was a tormented soul until he turned from Sinai to Zion. And the best guess among the scholars is that probably took place about 1517. Uh, 15 or 20 years later, he wrote about it. This is what he said. Then finally, he was studying the book of Romans. God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole Scripture became apparent to me. My mind ran through the Scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies in other phrases such as the work of God by which He makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which He makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Just as intensely as I had now hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. The passage from Paul became to me the very gate of paradise. Again, this is after years, decades, as a stellar but tortured monk. You might know that the same story is is replicated in the life of John Wesley almost 200 years later. You know, Wesley was the best Christian at his university. He and his brothers set up a group called the Holy Club where they badgered all the other folks who professed faith into making sure that they were working hard, getting up early in the morning to study the Bible and spending their Sabbaths in the service of those who were in need. He was so energetic in his faith that he announced to his uh, colleagues, I'm going to go the extra mile past all of you all. I'm going to become a missionary. I'm going to leave the comforts of England, and I'm going to make my way to the swamps of Georgia. Did you know that? He came to the coast of Georgia, and he inflicted the congregation there with this fearful, self-confident, bullying faith. I think the way the story unfolds is that there was a girl he was interested in, but he wouldn't commit. We know what that's like. And she got fed up with him and married another. He was so upset that he kept her from coming to the Lord's table. And that was enough for the congregation to say, we're done with you. And they put him on a boat back to England. And in the year after that, he started attending a Bible study, and somebody gave him Luther's commentary on Romans, of all things. And then he wrote, while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart Through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley was turning from Sinai to Zion. And I think it's interesting to note that he did that after years of energetic ministry after being ordained into the gospel ministry, after serving as a missionary. You know, all with his face set to Sinai. 
Of course, it, it, it ruined his life, and it ruined the work here. I mean, the work here survived, um, but it caused a lot of devastation. And then he turned to Zion, turned to the city of the living God, turned to the judge and found consolation, and he turned to the blood that spoke a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus, help us, right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we could really uh, keep going, but what we need is to take a step back and do some self-reflection. And for this, we need uh, some room, and we need the Holy Spirit, and we need your voice coming to us from the Scriptures. We want so much for you to be honored and glorified, this much you've put into our hearts uh, that we love you. And we want you to be honored and glorified. And we pray that uh, we would rest on you, uh, our shield, our protector, our great defender, and find our hearts uh, loosened up to love, to sing, to wonder, and to praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.